this week. This has to be one of the world's most cursed families, hands down. Then, an understandable way for a ghost to reach out to you in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Now, when I first heard this story, it, it blew me away. And I really don't know why. I, I know it appears on, like, top ten lists of some of the most haunted places around, and it deserves that. Not so much from its ghost stories, because to be honest, I mean, the ghost stories are there. They're not extremely over the top from what I've heard. But just from the, the tragic story of the family who lived in this house. So no more uh, surprise, no more uh, uh, mystery. The, the, the family I'm speaking of is the Lemp family. L-E-M-P in St. Louis, Missouri, in the United States of America. So the Lemp family owned the Lemp Mansion. They were most known in their day for having a brewery, making alcoholic beverages, I assume mostly beer. And that was their business. You think, okay, it's simple. You don't hear a lot of strange stories coming from families who run beer-making breweries. But that's not the case here. And I think by the end of this, if you didn't believe in the idea of a family being cursed, by the end of this, you will believe in it. Because it's just that over the top. Like when I first heard it, just, it, just, it just blew me away. Uh, so, I mean, the, the family story is very unique in the sense of dark history. And I don't understand how they can be cursed. And when it comes down to it for me, I don't know if it's um, in their genes to, to act in a certain way or if it's, you know, when you're raised with everything handed to you, maybe you create problems where there are none and it's like the they you have their own stress and their own issues that led to whatever occurred but when you look at it from the outside as i will in the moment you don't see it you don't know how it can be so then you start to think okay maybe this is something more supernatural but i don't know anyway let's let's get on with it so the lamp mansion in st louis was the family home of the Lemp family. So it was built in the 1860s. The business that they ran was called the Western Brewery. And it was actually quite famous historically. It's the very first place to use refrigeration. So they were the first ones anywhere in the world as a brewery to have a refrigeration unit, which was huge. So this is what propelled them to a very high level earlier but of course i mean you have a a a niche like this usually that doesn't last which is the case for them so uh william lemp was from germany and he comes over to the united states he establishes himself he has this brewery he makes a ton of money i'm sure there's tons of stories within that but we're just going to move past that get to the curse so the family business had boomed And the boom lasted from the late 1800s all the way to the early 1900s. And this is when the tragedy began for them. Now, they they call it the Lemp family curse. By the end of this, we'll see if you agree. And it all starts with William's favorite son, Frederick. Now, Frederick 
not William Jr., who is named after his father's, like it, Frederick was the one. He was supposed to take over the family businesses. He was the guy who was going to, you know, step in and make the business just as famous as it always been. But then he got sick. Uh, so it's one of the things you think, okay, no matter how hard you try to make things right, that usually whatever the situation, life, let's call it karma. It's like something's going to come in and, and change it if it wasn't meant to be. And that's the case here. So Frederick gets sick and the family having means and money, they tried everything. Uh, one of the things they tried was uh, moving the son to California so he could take advantage of the warm Mediterranean climate, right? Uh, but it didn't work. Nothing worked. And Frederick died at the age of 28 years old. Now, some have listed his death as mysterious circumstances. Uh, this is one of the things that it comes to creating over-the-top legends, right? But, I mean, I, I just did limited research on this. I didn't even go that deep. And from what I could see, this mysterious circumstance thing was all false. That it was just done as a way to kind of make it even more mysterious. But there's no mystery here. Uh, it is said that Frederick died of heart failure. So the mysterious circumstance, just, I think it's just over the top. You don't even need it, though, for this family. Because what's about to come is definitely over the top and, and also very true. Now, William Sr. took Frederick's death very hard. It said that he went into, I, they didn't know what it was back then, but it was a deep depression, that he was going through the motions, but he lost his happiness, he lost his excitement, he'd come into work and basically just sit at his desk and stare at the wall, he was always lost in thought. And people just kind of ignored it, They're like, oh, he's going through a tough time, just he'll, he'll, he'll be able to get through it, he'll be able to handle it, but unfortunately he didn't. Now, whether you believe the curse started with the sickness, the heart failure death of Frederick, or the situation that's about to occur, that's completely up to I think it's more with the situation here when in on February 13th, I don't know if they had Valentine's, it was one day before Valentine's in 1904, uh, William Sr. went up into the master bedroom of the Lemp Mansion and shot himself in the head. So his depression overcame him. Now, it, it continued on after that. William Sr., his, his widow, Julia, uh, she ended up getting cancer and died in that same master bedroom only two years after William took his life. Now, the other son, I assume the one who wasn't happy for being passed over, but as the story goes on, I mean, it, it, it kind of was good that I, his father could see that William Jr. was not meant to run the family business because now Frederick is gone. His father uh, killed himself. And at this point, he is the only one who can run the family business, but he's not good at it. And the other side of it, I mean, this is kind of on the nose, but, you know, a family who runs a business that makes alcohol, William Jr. was a complete drunk. And the fact that he was drunk all the time made it difficult for him to do anything of note. He would put his energy into parties. He wouldn't even focus on the family business. And because of this, the business suffered. Makes complete sense. And on the other side of it, his relationship is failing too. 
because he constantly cheated on his wife, Lillian. And at this point, I mean, this is in the early 1900s, having a person of station, having their wife file for divorce was very unheard of. I mean, nowadays it barely makes the news cycle, but back then it was huge. So then Lillian decides she wants to divorce William, and this starts a media circus. So the stories come out of William Jr.'s cheating. Uh, he fought back against his, his soon-to-be ex-wife. Sorry to laugh, but he, this is like this is a sign of the times. The way he tried to ruin Lillian's reputation was to say that she broke her, uh, air quotes, values by using foul language in public and wearing lavender to get attention from the public and from other men. And I, I have a feeling the way that the story plays played out there is I have a feeling that actually was a good way to come. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's like nowadays, I, I just walk into Walmart and I'll hear multiple women using foul language. I don't smell a lot of lavender, but um, I mean, there's other perfumes that I guess might get it. To, I don't know. Eh? But, but I mean, it's more common today. But back then, for a woman to do that was strange and, and over the top. Uh, so yeah, him cheating, her saying salty language, and for some reason that was considered on par. It's very strange. But, you know, it didn't work uh, for William. You know, trying to ruin her reputation didn't really work because when it came back to the court on the merits of what was being presented, Lillian was awarded a record high settlement in the year 1913. Uh, she also received sole custody of their son. So now at this point, William Jr., he, you know, his own fault, he has ruined his family's business, he has ruined his marriage, and then in 1913, a good portion of his financial wealth, which I'm sure is depleted at this point, is handed over to his ex-wife and his son. So you think, okay, this is the worst possible situation that could ever happen in the history of situations, but then it's the 1920s. And if you've been on any of the dark history and Hamilton tours that I lead, you know what happened in the 1920s, prohibition. And having prohibition occur when you are a brewery is one of the worst possible things that can occur. As a side note, there are some breweries that did survive it, uh, there's one in the in the city of Toronto, uh, Seagram's. Uh, they had, um, I think it was called Gotham and Warts back then, but uh, they had breweries in the distillery district of Toronto. And when Prohibition hit, they immediately jumped over to becoming criminals. And yeah, I know there's a there's a little trope there with uh, corporations being criminals, but back then, I mean, it's like they they had to make their profits, and the biggest ones were smart enough to support the bootleggers. Uh, this is 100% true. So many major breweries and alcohol companies turned over to supporting the criminals because their government had failed them. You know, saying, oh, we don't care about your business. We're just going to do prohibition whether it kills you or not. So like, all right, well, you don't care about us. Then we don't care about you and your gosh darn laws. And we're going to support the bootleggers. So many of these are supporting Rocco Perry, in southern Ontario, that's a Hamilton guy, and supporting, of course, Al Capone down in Chicago, all the other bootleggers who rose up during that time. 
But I mean, when you have bad leadership with William Jr., they're obviously not going to do that. And for this reason, the profits just went through the basement. And because it was poorly led, Western Brewery basically died with Prohibition. So William Jr. is still alive, obviously not living a very good life. And then his sister moves into the mansion. You think, oh, his sister is going to be there to support him. But no, it's actually the opposite. They just kind of like uh, uh, fed off of each other's depression. Uh, So uh, Elsa is the sister's name. Her marriage broke down. So then she uh, leaves the husband, moves into the mansion. And then you have this, this back and forth, which tends to happen with some relationships. It was over, and it was back on again, and it was over, and it was back on again. And this confusing time led up to March of 1920. So on top of everything else that's happened to William Jr., now he's living with his sister Elsa, who I assume he loved deep down. And in 1920, when this is all coming to a head, it was only 11 days after she remarried. Her husband was still inside the Lent Mansion, though, And she had a night of insomnia, which kind of drove her insane. And inside the mansion, she then had a fit. She took a gun and shot herself in the head. And uh, William Jr., I I know on the inside he was broken, as we'll prove in a moment. But um, when he was asked, like the reporter asked him about his sister's death inside the house where he also lived... He was quoted as saying the following, that's the Lemp family for you. That's the Lemp family for you. So you can see that he was kind of trying to, he was trying to add humor to a very dark situation, but he also kind of showed how he felt. I mean, it was just completely an insensitive thing to say, which he had a right to say because of all the, the stuff that was occurring. His life was almost completely falling apart. And he only lasted two more years. So in the year 1922, he also gave up. He sold the brewery for next to nothing. He didn't see a way around that. And only a few months later, he followed his father and sister. And inside the office of the mansion, he shot himself through the heart. So, I mean, it's just that this, you can understand when I say the idea that the family was cursed. I mean, this, this is just it. I mean, these people had everything and then just through this downward spiral of crap and, you know, some self-inflicted wounds as well, it just all went gone. It's just down the toilet. Now, here's where they try to fight back. You know, uh, we have William III. This is William Jr.'s son. He tried to bring the brewery back. So after Prohibition is done, he's like, okay, our family name still means something. So he tried to start his own business and attempted to utilize the Lemp family name, but it failed. And then poor William III, he died of a heart attack. He was only 42 years old. And then we have the story around a man named Charles Lemp. This was William Jr.'s brother. So he became the final member of the family to live inside the mansion. Uh, He was an unmarried bachelor. He moved into the house with his dog, just the two of them. He was a recluse. He never entertained. He rarely went out. He was also known uh, as reputation as an angry man, so nobody would approach him. Now, this story led all the way up until 1941. And then Charles did something very strange. I mean, if you're 
the, 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 the family members before him with their suicides, it, it wasn't really planned out. They just, it was, it was in the moment. And then the shock of it went out into the world, but not for Charles. It's like his, his family reputation is just, it, it created a feel around him. I mean, you think of it as an outsider's view back in the 1940s. You have one of the Lemp family members living inside the house by himself with his dog and not entertaining, not a very nice guy. I mean, if social media was around, it would be, a, it would be an explosion of uh, rumors and lies around him. And it was almost like everybody was just waiting. I can see them just kind of like watching the headlines waiting for it to say, okay, Charles Lemp just killed himself. So I just I, I see that as what's going to happen here, but he did it in an extremely odd way. It's like the strangest way I've heard. So in 1941, he wrote a letter to a local funeral home and detailed how he wanted things handled after his death. Okay, thinking, okay, then he's just going gonna to plan to off himself you know, within the next little while. That's not the case. It took him eight years. So eight years then pass. I can just see this funeral home just like, what's going on here? It was just like, we have his information on record. It's like, is he going to do something strange? And then one, two, three, eight years. The year is 1949. And then that's the final act of the cursed family took place. Uh, Now, before Charles took his own life, he sadly killed his dog, I mean, just tell you that, you know, all the rumors about this guy being not a good person is 100% true. So he kills his dog first and then takes his own life inside the mansion. Now, at this point, you're probably saying, I've had enough, Daniel. Please stop it. No more death, no more suicide, and I'm done. That, That was it. And it was actually done for the curse as well because the final son of William Jr., he lived a normal life. And I think the reason why he lived a normal life is because he didn't go anywhere near his family's home. I think he technically owned it at this point, but he didn't go there. He didn't live in it. He he just stayed away. He thought it was cursed. And then when he uh, he died, his will came out. This is many years later that in his will, he stated uh, all the items inside the mansion need to be destroyed. So, you know, take the furniture, take everything, just take it out and destroy it. Don't sell it, nothing. Just get rid of it. Just wipe it off the face of the planet, thinking that the energy associated with it might cause other people problems, and he he wanted the curse to end here. This isn't confirmed, but it is believed the way that uh, the final son of William Jr. is the one who ended the family curse. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, was the place haunted? And uh, yeah, we don't, not just about the, uh, the, the history here, but we also got to talk about the ghosts. And yes, I mean, obviously, there's stories, ghost stories. I think there's tours related to the ghosts that happen inside the house. Uh, one example is the atrium room it used to have exotic plants and birds. And visitors with a house would always hear the, the sounds of songbirds inside that room. As well, in the dining room, people have seen a man sitting at a table reading a newspaper, and they would also smell cigar smoke, which could have been William Sr. Uh, One really cool story happened to a waitress 
So currently, uh, the the building is a restaurant inn, and inside the restaurant, uh, the waitress came in really early to kind of set everything up. And when she walked in, she was surprised to see a man sitting at one of the tables. Uh, his back was to her, and he was stock still, just staring calmly out the window. Now, she was surprised to see the guest, but she's a dedicated server, so she actually called out, uh, Sir, would you like a cup of coffee? And the waitress then looked away to turn on a light, and when she looked back, she jumped because the room was empty. There had been nobody there. So would you believe in the sense of a family being cursed? But of all the stories I've heard over the years, which I've heard many, in relation to a darker history associated with a certain family, this one in my mind is just way over the top. So if I would give an example of a curse occurring to a family, the Lemp family would be my example. Now, if you've been on the Niagara on the Lake tour, you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. And I'm surprised I haven't featured her before. I I might have talked about her in passing. I can't quite remember. But this is related to a house in Niagara on the Lake. Now, if you're not familiar, it is considered, in my mind, and a lot of people mind, Canada's most haunted town. It's a small space. It was one of the uh, stages for the only war ever fought on Canadian soil, the War of 1812. It was the site of a massacre of British soldiers when the Americans did a surprise attack by the water. The water would have been by the golf course today, uh, where Fort Mississauga is. Hence why they put Fort Mississauga on that spot, just in case it was a second attack. So... Much violence in that town and in the region itself. Small town, many ghost stories, two ghost tours, a book written just about the ghosts. It's a very haunted place. So we do the tour through Niagara-on-the-Lake. It's one of our most popular. And tons of stories tend to stand out, but there's one house that definitely does stand out. It's the only example of Victorian architecture in the town. It's on King Street, this beautiful house with stained glass windows, and a woman haunting it. Now, the, the history behind is that a lawyer built it in the late 1800s. And we're not 100% sure, but it is said that the woman is a lady named Fanny. Now, she lived in the house, and it's a, it's a really cool story. It's said that she started out as a servant and eventually rose to be the owner of the house, that the house was left to her in the will of the man who built it, and then she kind of took over became the matriarch of that house and the family inside. So she has a great history, very energetic spirit, but we don't actually go inside the house. So when we're doing a tour, we stop the group. We used to stop the group across the street from it. Uh, Currently, that stop is on hiatus because they're selling the house and we want to be good neighbors. After that, most likely it will be added back depending what goes inside the house as long as it's not a residential home, which I doubt it would be. I mean, it's too massive. It's too close to the main drag. Chances are there's going to be an inn or a bed and breakfast or some kind of shop. It's going to be something like that. So we used to stop across the street. We would tell folks about the story with the woman And then we would say, okay, 
try and take a picture of the house. And people will be confused, like, okay, I mean, it's beautiful. We're going to take a picture anyway. What the hell are you talking about? But then I say, okay, because strange things will happen to the cameras. 50% of my tours, 50% of the other guides' tours, the most common, of course, is a drained battery, which has a, a, a cool, if you walk away from the house, and I've actually called it, and I've amazed groups with this one, I'll say, hey, wait 20 minutes, don't touch your phone, wait 20 minutes, and then try and turn the phone back on. And even though it didn't work across from the house, when you get away from the house, it comes back on, goes back to that original battery level. It's almost like it never happened. So that's is very cool. It's like one of the coolest things that can happen on a tour when you kind of like call a ghostly experience like that. So I, I haven't had it happen in a while. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that it happens again in the future. But I mean, the idea for a spirit to reach out and affect electronics is not over the top. When you think about it, right, I mean, I assume many of you who are listening to this show are believers in ghost stories and ghostly energy. And you know, I mean, we're all made up of the same stuff. We're all just vibrating atoms. So for that reason, if I were to say that ghosts can reach out to energetic devices, which have more energy than, say, a rock, then that's what they're going to do. So it's like uh, investigators, when they go into spaces, they'll bring with them their cameras, they'll bring their uh, spirit boxes and so on, EMF detectors, because they know that ghosts can manipulate energy. EMF detector is a perfect example of that. Electromagnetic field detector. So if a ghost is going to manipulate energy that can't be seen, the meter is going to pick up on it. And that's how it works. That's why it's such a common tool. But in this case, we don't have EMF detectors. Instead, we have cameras, and that's how she reaches out. Now, I had a, a experience happen to me during one of the tours that I'll never forget. I, I tell it on all my tours. This is the beauty of it is that all the guides have their own experiences. So if you go to that stop with me, you're going to get different stories than you might with, say, Sir Lawrence or the Black Widow or Viscount Lestrange. You know, they're all going to have different ways of telling Stella Marie. They all have their own experiences with that stop. But for me, the one that stood out the most is I had a group in front of me, and one of the men in the group, they brought this beautiful uh, DSLR camera with, you know, the detachable lens, like a very professional camera. It's one that you pay a couple thousand dollars for. And he had been using it through the tour to take a bunch of shots. So we get to the house and I tell people, oh, yeah, it's uh, the woman haunting it. I say they reach out to cameras, so I invite you to take a picture. And he was, like, right there. Like, he, like, you know, moved back because he wanted a full action shot with the group in front of him and then the entire house behind that. So I was curious because I usually just get, like, cell phones or the little tourist cameras. So I was curious, and I, I wanted to get out of the way of the shot for people to take their photos. So I walk around come around towards the back so i'm standing directly behind the guy i see the shot he's set up it's beautiful he's got the people's heads in the foreground like closer and then in the back you can see the house the street in front of it i was like it's nicely framed i was like this guy is obviously a, a photographer so i watched him and he hits the button i hear the uh the beautiful click 
that those DSLR cameras do. It's like one of the best things about them. So it does the old fashioned click with the lens goes off, the image disappears and then it comes back and I saw it. And just like him, he was staring at it and I could see he was confused and I was confused. I'm like looking over his shoulder. Just imagine that scene of us both looking confused, <laughs> staring at the back of the camera. And he's like, what, what the heck is this? So what had happened in the shot, he had lined up the entire house with the heads of the people, the street in front of it. And when the shot came back, it was zoomed in. So it had zoomed in on the middle stained glass window of the turret, uh, the tower at the front of the house. And I don't know if there's any significance to that. If like something related to that window, if maybe the ghost was looking at it, whatever the reason was, it shouldn't have happened. And you might be thinking, oh, Daniel, it was just a malfunction on the camera. You know how cameras are. But no, remember, this is a DSLR camera. And for the most part, the most professional ones are manual zoom. So you actually have to turn the lens at the front to zoom in and out of something. And he didn't touch it. He had his hands on the sides of the camera. So for it to come back as a zoomed photo is almost impossible. Uh, considering as well that the camera's a couple thousand dollars, that it has not done this ever before. I actually asked him, I said, is the camera malfunction like that? And he said, no. He said the camera's always been great. It's never had that type of problem. Not that I think it would be physically possible, because as I said, you have to turn the lens to move it, yet for somehow it, it zoomed in on that window all by itself. So yeah, I know most of the stories are related to the batteries failing, to the you know, camera acting strange, like most people, their cell phones, uh, multiple pictures will come back when they only took one or refuse to take the picture, or it'll be like uh, foggy or just completely blanked out. You know, these are the things that I was used to, but to have a professional camera like that, uh, you know, a couple thousand dollar camera to have that strange issue related to a zoom that was a new one for me. So of all the experiences I've had at that house that prove the energy is real, that is the one that will stick with me till the end of time. Anyway, that's it, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.